Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. We're happy to have you this evening, and we're going to be talking with Adam Smith tonight. He is an applied climatologist for NOAA, and uh, one thing that you've probably remembered from years past by watching our, our show here on YouTube or listening to the podcast version is we discuss the billion-dollar climate disasters that happen each year. And so with that, we're bringing a new perspective tonight. As of uh, late July, Noah is using a new um, interactive way where you can kind of really dive into your own community and see what impacts uh, from these disasters hit in your area. So with that, Adam is our guest tonight. Adam's helped uh, kind of release some of this information. And, you know, Adam, one thing that uh, that we like to ask folks before, um, who's never been on our show before, um, kind of how you got into the weather world. So we'll give you that opportunity to kind of tell us about your what your weather story and then we'll kind of get into the the main part of the interview but want to give you that opportunity to kind of tell us uh, your history and your background here in the weather community. Like a lot of people, you know, weather has been a fascination since I was a kid. Uh, I grew up in Hickory, North Carolina, so you know, got to have the experience of Hurricane Hugo back in 1989. And I remember being stuck at my friend's house for about a week when Superstorm 93 came through and got you know, a couple feet of snow and just the, the wind from that. And, you know, all the major weather and climate extremes you remember as a kid. Um, I, I went to North Carolina State University. I got a Bachelor of Science in Meteorology there. Um, did some, some also, I've always been an interdisciplinary type thinker. So not just the physical sciences, but um, minor in economics and communications as well. Then I went to graduate school at UNC Chapel Hill and did some geography work. Um, and then uh, was hired at National Climatic Data Center postgraduate school in 2000, late 2004, I believe. And I've been really just moving around there from the director's office to um, doing in situ observations and extremes within the weather and climate monitoring uh, part of NCDC at the time, but now it's the National Centers for Environmental Information. And back in 2008 or so, I was engaging with uh, different sectors, understanding how they use NOAA's data. So the insurance and reinsurance community in particular, understanding their industry, how they use data from the government, also what we can learn from them, um, and, and kind of reinvented this product that had been sitting around for, for a while, uh, the billion dollar weather and climate disaster. So made some partnerships with the private sector, uh, coupled kind of the best public sector and the best private sector data, um, wrote several peer-reviewed papers on this with the algorithms and the analysis we do. And really since uh, that time, it's just kind of been growing in fits and starts, um, adding new features um, as we learn how other users might like different types of information and bring it to this day where, you know, we've tried to focus on the county level and the census track level um, risk maps with our partners at FEMA, at CDC, at Census, um, and, and really trying to bring almost a neighborhood level of granularity to the risks we all face uh, in terms of weather and climate extremes. It's really cool. Uh, for those who are watching or listening, I had no idea Adam's from Hickory. Uh, I live in Morganton, so I'm like wow. basically neighbors. So a little uh, coincidence there. You kind of surprised me when you said that. I was like, oh, I didn't know that. So really cool to have a, a fellow uh, Foothill uh, folk uh, here on the show tonight. Adam, uh, looking over 
uh, some of the data that that's been released with this newest update. Um, just one thing that I found really interesting is uh, over the last five years, from 2017 to 2021, there's been 89 billion dollar uh, disaster events, averaging around 17.8, almost 18 events per year. Uh, with a cost of seven hundred and eighty-eight point four billion, which averages about one hundred fifty-eight billion a year, and uh, almost average of nine hundred uh, or so deaths every year from these uh, from these events. So, um, we've we've talked about that. Like I said in our opening, we've we kind of as a year in review, we've kind of highlighted some of these events, but. Um, before we kind of get into these new updates for those folks, and, and I'll be interested to know this as well, how do you how how do you guys go about collecting this data and, and making uh, these maps that are released at the end of the year? You know, at the end of every year, we we try to capture between our public and private sector partners, and a lot of these are the federal science agency, FEMA, uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture, um, you know, CDC Census. Uh, the National Interagency Fire Center, the Energy Information Administration, but of course, uh, state climate offices, um, you know, on the ground post-disaster reporting is important. Uh, and then partners in the private sector like Munich Reinsurance, Swiss Reinsurance, and Property Claim Service. And from all that, you know, I'm sure I left several out, um, we, we capture about 15 different asset classes. Uh, so, you know, damage to homes, uh, businesses, vehicles, all the contents of those structures. Um, time element losses such as business interruption, or if you're out of your house while it's being rebuilt after disaster, that's loss of living quarters. Um, but of course, damage to public infrastructure such as roads, bridges, levee systems, uh, the electrical grid, uh, you know, in California when that burnt down or in, in southern Louisiana when hurricanes come through the last several years to knock the grid down. Um, of course, agricultural assets would be uh, most of all the field crops, the uh, livestock feeding costs as those increase with drought, um, even things like lost hydropower in the West. Um, and, and let's see, there's probably a few others I'm missing. Um, damage to the energy platforms in the Gulf of Mexico as the hurricanes disrupt those. But even though that that's really a pretty comprehensive total direct loss, so that's insured and uninsured losses, we're still not able to capture a variety of assets such as uh, mental and physical health care related costs, um, you know, things like the value of a statistical life. We don't we don't quantify that when people are, are killed from disasters. Um, even the downstream supply chain ripple effects outside of a disaster region, we don't capture those. So a lot of the more secondary and tertiary losses, just the data isn't there across space and time consistently enough for, for to bring that into the analysis. But uh, we think it's 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 a strong conservative baseline, the best that we can quantify to this point. But we're always looking for other ways to bring in other uh, types of information if it kind of meets a high threshold. And looking at these numbers, um, we go back to the 2010s, from 2010 to 2019, mm -hmm. there was an average of 12.8 events per year, uh, $91.9 billion uh, per year and 523 deaths per year. So we've kind of seen that that 10 year period, those numbers, and then you fast forward it to the last five years, which mm. uh, kind of takes the, the back half of these 2010s. And you can really see the exponential growth of, of what's happening. Uh, there's so many factors that can, uh, you know, go into this. What what are some of those that you guys are, are really seeing across the board that's, uh, that's 
that's concerning. Yeah. So the last five years in particular, and I would say this year in 2022 is probably more leaning toward the average as opposed to what we've seen in, from 2017 through 2021, which is just a really anomalous period for so many extremes across much of the country. Um, so quickly, what the different factors, of course, so we have more exposure, you know, people living in harm's way, whether that's on the coast, people living in the river floodplains or the wildland urban interface. Uh, so there's an increased natural, you know, a human risk there uh, that increases our exposure, but our vulnerability is also increased where we build and how we build, you know, in much of the U.S., the building codes are not sufficient to the extremes that we face every year. Uh, but, but you know, as I like to say, uh, climate change is kind of the 800-pound gorilla in the room uh, as far as what drives some of these extremes to be billion-dollar disasters. So, as an example, you know, we've got the mega drought in the West really since the year 2000, which feeds into these longer, more destructive wildfire seasons. Four out of the last five wildfire seasons, 2017, 2018, 2020, and 2021, have been one order of magnitude more costly than any of the other wildfire years, inflation adjusted to present day dollars. So, again, you see that it's kind of a step function difference there as far as our exposure and vulnerability to wildfires predicated on the drought impacts. But then in the East, you know, in the 2010s decade, we had more heavy rain urban flooding or river basin flooding events during the 2010s than we did in the 1980s, 1990s, and 2000s combined. Again, all this stat, uh, data is inflation adjusted to present day dollars, including sub-billion dollar events that are now billion dollar events just due to inflation. So yeah, exposure, vulnerability, but we know a warmer atmosphere holds more water vapor, therefore higher potential for extreme precipitation. And we have seen that, uh, and, and my gosh, we've had even more in 2022. Um, we're still working on crunching those numbers right now. So, uh, and I guess the final thing would be, yes, this is the seventh consecutive year that we've had in a forecasted above average hurricane season. Um, those poor people and economies along the Gulf of Mexico, particularly in Louisiana, just so many impacts from the tropical cyclone events. You know, you're talking about Louisiana. It seems like, I can't remember the, the exact number, but it was like six or seven times in the last year or so that they had been affected by by some tropical event. One thing I was, I was wanting to hit on, and, and Frank, I'll let you jump in whenever, uh, you were talking about the wildfires, and, and that's something that has really, I don't know, maybe come more to a public forefront. You know, I, I know we've always had wildfires every year, but it seems like they're getting more coverage, and it it seems like it's because they're hitting more populated areas. I think back to mm. Christmas of last year, uh, just mm. out, just north of Denver, I think it was near Boulder where that, that a fire just erupted and you know, so many homes and, and subdivisions were just totally burned in, in a matter of an, a couple of hours. And, and mm. those, that's scary, you know, that that's scary, but it seems like more and more people as they build homes are built it into more areas that are, susceptible of of being in, in wildfires or along the coast where we're seeing more flooding so i guess that that's playing into it as well where, where people are living yeah absolutely um but again four out of the last five wildfire seasons have just been just on a whole other level uh, as far as what we've seen any other year and again exposure vulnerability and the influence of climate on these longer wildfire seasons or if you even talk to wildfire wild uh fire people on the ground they say that some of the fires are burning more intensely and of mm -hmm. course that could also go back to land use you know there's more fuel to burn as well so you know it's a really 
complicated issue. And, you know, it's ha ha I think the question is, how do we mitigate uh, future losses based on what we've learned on learned from these extremes in the past? Because no one wants to keep repeating the same mistakes and pain uh, in lives and livelihoods uh, as we move into the future. One thing I'm curious about is uh, what your data sources are uh, for some mm -hmm. of the information that uh, you, you put into your billion dollar disaster tool. Uh, mm -hmm. Just curious where where you get your uh, uh, damage estimates from, for example, and uh, perhaps other other background information like the socioeconomic data. So we have about a dozen different public and private sector partners. Uh, one of the core ones would be the property claim service, but also we have partners at Munich Reinsurance and Swiss Reinsurance. So it's a lot of the, they take surveys of hundreds and hundreds of property um, insurance companies continually around the country for all hazards. Um, and those are also updated. Uh, so we also have the FEMA National Flood Insurance Program uh, payout data, um, USDA Risk Management Agency, which manages the crop insurance part of USDA, uh, the National Interagency Wildfire Center, which is really a clearinghouse for wildfire information, such as wildfire suppression costs. Um, and, and, and so and one thing I didn't mention earlier is, so we have all of this public and private sector data across all these different asset classes that I mentioned, uh, which are both insured and under and uninsured asset classes, even underinsured asset classes. And so we also have another data layer, partly from the private sector, which you one of the key first transformations is taking the reciprocal of the insurance penetration rate, which varies by asset class, geography, and hazard type, just based on the way that insurance is structured or other programs are structured. So we're not just putting back out information that has been given to us. There are calculations and algorithms to help quantify. Uh, we even run Monte Carlo simulations to uh, calculate the uncertainty surrounding uh, these estimates, which again, vary by hazard type and also time away from the, you know, how mature is the data with the data latency? So, you know, there's some, some uh, real actuarial science behind this in addition to climatology and other data sources. Well, Adam, we appreciate that. Frank, I want to, uh, do you want to do your fun questions before we uh, before we end up? I don't think we've yeah, talked sure. about Ash. We haven't talked about Asheville on, on our fun <laughs> questions. So, uh, yeah, that's true. We've only had one guest from the area, uh, Philippe Papin. So, uh, yeah, we'll we'll do the fun questions here, and hopefully the internet connection holds out. <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah, these are designed uh, to kind of get to know you and and where you're. Uh, from uh, and and where you live a little bit better. So, uh, I'm going to ask you uh, since you live in Asheville, uh, uh, what is uh, something that someone is uh, visiting Western North Carolina uh, has to do? What what's uh, sort of a must do when you're visiting? Well, I could be stereotypical and say go to the Biltmore House, but I think I'll I'll say instead just hop on the Blue Ridge Parkway and find a nice trail and a nice view. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I mean, people come to Asheville for the Biltmore House, but uh, there, there's a lot more there, and uh, I think that's a good choice. That's uh, number one. Okay, so uh, what's a, a, a restaurant that, that's a must-visit while you're in Asheville? Oh, I'm interested to hear question. this. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, I would say one thing about Asheville is it's still a relatively small, smaller-sized city, but I think it has big city amenities, and by that I mean it has – almost any type of cuisine you want, it's available. Uh, and it's pretty high quality stuff too. Uh, you know, there's there's a Thai place that's pretty good. Um, I think it's called Thai basil 
or pad thai. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I my, my wife usually orders out for us. <laughs> and with the pandemic, I haven't actually eaten out at a restaurant very uh, recently. Uh, again, maybe another stereotype, Tupelo Honey, even though that's gone to become a chain. I believe it started in Asheville and it's kind of that Southern uh, style cooking. So I like Tupelo Honey is a pretty good one. Uh, same question about your hometown, Hickory. What's uh, something that uh, someone has to do when you're visiting Hickory? Well, so uh, I guess Lake Hickory is kind of a, a fun place in the summertime in particular. Get out on the water and uh, meet some friends and just hang out. That's that's a, that's a fun spot. Yeah, you, you want to mention a restaurant there? I cannot recall uh, a, a restaurant there that I've eaten at in a long time, so I'll have to pass on that one. <laughs> All right. That's fine. No, no worries. No worries. We'll say Bojangles. Um, <laughs> yeah. There you go. What is uh, another place in the Carolinas that you enjoy visiting? I really like going to the Outer Banks, particularly the northeastern part of the state. So, you know, Duck, Nags Head, it's just so beautiful out there. Uh, just, culturally, geographically, weather is really beautiful out there. So I like that part of the state in particular. I also like Asheville. So I think I think North Carolina is a uh, it's kind of like a horizontal California. We get a lot of different geography, and you can you can see it all in one day if you're really uh, aggressive. <laughs> That's one of my selling points when people are talking about well, why do you like North Carolina so much? It's like, yeah, you, theoretically you could start the day up on a ski slope, and by the end of the day you can be watching a sunset or out on a surfboard at the coast. You know, it's like it's one of those states you can you can get both in you know if you really wanted to so yeah you take yeah. the carolinas together and and uh, you can get almost oftentimes you can get any weather regime with mm -hmm. just a few hours drive yeah we get one of one of these cold air damming setups there can be an, a nice storm going on in in hickory and a snowstorm in boone <laughs> and you get to get on the other side of the of the wedge front and it's it's 65 in Columbia and 75 in Charleston, and <laughs> you, you can get a little bit of everything. All right. All right, Frank, is that it? You good? That's it. All right. Sounds good. Well, Adam, we appreciate you being on with us tonight. Um, do you have like social media or a website or anything you'd like to promote about this or um, anything like that that folks can kind of log on to and, and, and see? Yeah, I would just, um, just Google um, – uh, U.S. billion dollar weather and climate disasters. I think it also comes up if you Google weather cost or climate costs. Um, you know, we're always trying to add new tools and functionality and capabilities there and make the data really fun and interactive. That's the point. Uh, uh, I, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I don't I don't really do Twitter or anything like that, but you can look me up uh, again, focusing on weather extremes, costs, impacts. Uh, and uh, yeah, look forward to uh to hearing from folks sounds good we appreciate you joining us and we appreciate all of you who are watching and listening we hope to uh, see you back here soon on the carolina weather group y'all have a good night